You're listening to Season 6 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam. For new fans, old fans, and not yet fans, we analyze all 42 years of Gundam, episode by episode and movie by movie, researching its influences, examining its themes, and discussing how each piece of the Gundam canon fits within the changing context in Japan and the world from 1979 to today. This is episode 6.2, Adventures in SD Land, and we are your hosts. I'm Tom, a lifelong Gundam fan, and to unlock the podcaster prestige class, I had to take levels of Bard and Wizard, and then choose the multi-track editing feat at 4th level. And I'm Nina, new to this run of SD Gundam, and forced to admit that I find it cute when the little chibi Gundam characters blush. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by the support of 608 patrons and subscribers. Thank you all, and special thanks go out to our newest supporter, Matthew O.M. This podcast would not be possible without you. This week we're finishing up Mobile Suit SD Gundam Mark II by covering both Part 2, Gandamu Meibamenshu, and Part 3, Gandamu Densetsu. In English, those would be Gundam Famous Scenes Collection and Gundam Legend, respectively. The credits for Parts 2 and 3 are the same as Part 1 last week. Amino Tetsuro wrote and directed, Sato Gen designed the characters and oversaw the animation, and Kenji Kawai handled the music. Before we get into discussing the episode, and hopefully before you've watched it, we do have to give you a warning. SD Gundam Mark II Part 3 contains a pretty bad transphobic joke towards the end, so you should be aware of that before you watch it. We will be discussing it during the talkback, so please be aware of that as well. Now, Nina's recaps. SD Gundam Mark II Part II, Original Gundam Famous Scene Collection, doesn't follow any sort of narrative. It's a series of puns, wordplays, and visual gags based on episode titles from Mobile Suit Gundam, or First Gundam, Mobile Suit Zeta Gundam, and Mobile Suit Gundam Double Zeta, and we will discuss those gags in the talkback. SD Gundam Mark II Part Three, Gundam Legend, opens in the Kingdom of Zeta, dark and desolate ever since its princess was kidnapped by the great demon lord Shar and his minions. King Degwin has summoned our intrepid protagonists, Amuro the Swordsman, Camille the Mage, and Judo the Thief, to rescue the princess. To aid them in their quest, he entrusts them with an ancient relic, a gashapon, or toy dispensing machine that will allow them to summon guardian deities, or Gundams. In the Zaku wilderness, Camille takes on a whole pack of Zaku single-handedly, tricking them into getting drunk by telling them that turning red is a key step in powering up. Junk collectors retrieve the incapacitated mobile suits and give the heroes a 100 yen coin. In the Valley of Zaku, they use the 100 yen coin to summon the guardian deity Gundam from the ancient and sacred Gashapon machine. The Gundam slows Shar's Zaku down with a pedestrian crossing, 
and when the Zaku fails to slow down in time and hits Camille so hard that he's launched into space, they have it locked up and taken away as a murderer. The White Base vacuums Camille back to Earth, and our heroes continue on their journey. On the frozen plain of Doms, a Dom mobile suit skates nimbly around our heroes, but becomes enraged when no one admires its skating prowess. The heroes and an assembly of other men from the first three UC Gundam series are too busy watching Sela skate. In its hurry to confront Sela, the Dom falls into a hole in the ice and freezes into a giant ice cube. Our heroes use the ice to make kakigori, a traditional Japanese shaved ice dessert, and Sela pays them 200 yen. The last obstacle is the Zeong's Thundercloud. With one of their 100 yen coins, the heroes summon the Zeta Gundam, but it's defeated by a single shot of the Zeong's lightning-like weapon. Their last coin summons the Double Zeta. Still in two pieces, it evades the Zeong's opening attack and uses a mirror to deflect the next shot back at the Zeong itself, destroying the enemy mobile suit's body. But the last boss wasn't the last boss at all. They must defeat the Sazabi if they want the key to Mount Zeon, the Cloud Castle Fortress where Shar is keeping the princess. Judo knocks the Sazabi onto its back, but even though it's stuck and cannot get up, it refuses to give them the key, going so far as enclosing itself in a turban shell for protection, only to be eaten by a Zacrello. But Camille defeats the Zacrello with his spacey stare, and the three of them, in possession of the key and clinging to the Zeong head, fly up to Mount Zeon. There, Shar taunts them. The door to the fortress is a smooth stone slab with no keyhole in sight. Ha! All their efforts have been pointless. While he gloats and laughs, they push him back against the stone and shove the key in his mouth. Shar becomes a door, and they open it to find the princess on the other side. As they fly the princess back to her father's palace, sunlight and spring return to the kingdom of Zeta. Each hero hopes they can convince the princess to be their bride, but on arriving at the palace, they learn she is already betrothed to Chaemin. The princess is a man? In any case, the princess won't be marrying any of them, and they retire grumpily to Mount Zeon to sulk and bully Shar. There were a couple of things that I legitimately really enjoyed about this SD Gundam Mark II Part Two <laughs> short. The main one, though, is the self-consciousness of it. All of these characters blushing and apologetic, even explicitly apologizing for their extremely eye-roll and sigh-worthy dad jokes. <laughs> hey, I thought some of these were pretty good. You would. Also, the increasingly deranged narrator. That is that is a really good joke. Yeah, it's almost stretching things too far to call all of these jokes puns. Some of them are visual gags. Some of them are wordplay. Most of the wordplay is not particularly clever. It's just words that sound similar. <laughs> but a lot of them aren't even proper homophones. Yeah, at least one of them isn't really a pun at all. It's the one about like Haman's scorn. And then it's just a clip of Haman laughing scornfully. Like that is not even wordplay. That's just like 
those are the words that they said. What, what's on the label is in the tin. Most of them don't really require an explanation from us. Uh, it's clear enough, or it's made very clear in the short, <laughs> how the words are similar. I do want to mention, I remember reading from the director, Amino, that this particular short was taken directly from Sato. And when you realize, as we did last week, that Sato has not seen Zeta or Double Zeta or Shar's counterattack, suddenly this whole segment makes a lot more sense because he's getting, you know, one sentence descriptions of these characters. He's getting pictures of their character designs, and then he's getting the names of these episodes. And so, of course, this is what you would get. He doesn't know what happened in the episode Judo in Space. He just thinks it's funny to put Judo in space. It reminds me a bit of that artist who did a series a while back where the artist had never actually seen Pokemon, and they would have people describe Pokemon to them, and then they would try to draw them as described, and it was hilarious. It was so funny. This one doesn't quite get to that point ever, but there are a couple that I want to talk through. But first, we have a new definitive list of Gundams. I recognized many of them, but there were a few I wanted to ask you about. First up, the one that complains, everyone forgets about me. That would be the Mark II. Okay. And then the green one? That would be the full armor Gundam. Ah, okay. It does describe itself as a strong full body weapon. (laughs) The one that immediately follows that one uh, is the heavy Gundam, which is related to the full armor Gundam. Is that the one that says they're strong, they think, but nobody actually knows? Yes. So the full armor Gundam and the heavy Gundam uh, sort of come from MSV and MSX respectively. But as I was looking into their origins and confirming that that is actually the heavy Gundam because it's a weird color scheme, it's not the color scheme that I'm used to seeing for the heavy Gundam. I think both of these were in Plamo Kyoshiro, which is a very, very early Gundam manga, like 1981, um, about building Gunpla and then using those Gunpla in like a video game, virtual reality combat game. So the full armor Gundam is meant to be a more realistic redesign of the perfect Gundam, which itself had been created for Plamo Kyoshiro. Both the perfect and the full armor Gundam were included in the old MSV design series, and then the full armor was adopted back into Plamo Kyoshiro as a new version of the perfect Gundam. And before it got the name Full Armor Gundam, it was briefly called The Strong Gundam. So that's part of where this is coming from. The Heavy Gundam, which shows up right afterwards, is a later refinement of the Full Armor Gundam, which appeared in both the MSX design series and in Plamo Kyoshiro. Unfortunately, I haven't been able to confirm which of those happened first, but the color schemes for the two versions are very different, and the color scheme used here is the one from Plamo Kyoshiro. There's also a very brief cameo from the prototype Gundam. In terms of gags that perhaps warrant a little more explanation, the first one that I made a note of was Runaway Rue, or Ru no Tobo. Those of you who are more familiar with Japanese food might know about Japanese curry, 
when people in Japan make curry, they typically buy a box that has curry root in it, in sort of a brick that you then mix in with water and whatever meat and vegetable you're using. So the box roux is coming out of is a curry roux box. Haha, <laughs> roux, roux. <laughs> I'm pretty sure we made that joke also. Why she's in a bathing suit? I have no idea. I think I know why. I have, I have some idea. I'm lying. <laughs> Probably the short that I enjoyed the most, actually, was the one of Sirocco and Yazan having a little bit of a drinking party because Sirocco got dumped again. Did you get the... The pun in that one? That I, one's an actual I, I homophone. <laughs> and this is one that uh, maybe we should explain. Um, the Japanese title of the episode they're riffing on is Shiroko no Mei, the eyes of Shiroko. And that one, Mei is eyes, no is like a possessive indicator, and then Shiroko is Sirocco. No Mei is the imperative form of drink. So you'd say no Mei to tell somebody, drink this. So here we get Shiroko no Mei. Uh, with Yazan telling Sirocco, drink up, drink up, you'll feel better. At which point they turn to the audience, repeat the line again in a pretty obvious, do you get it? Do you <laughs> do get you it? Get uh -huh. it <laughs> do you get it? Uh, and then are doused with water. And then at the very end, they have one of the kanji in the title for the short change. It changes from may, like famous, to a different kanji that is also pronounced mei, but means perplexed, lost, erroneous. <laughs> Disjointed. So, the confused scene collection. <laughs> there are two other vignettes I want to talk about briefly. Uh, one of them is Haman's black shadow, which repeats the, the joke of Haman laughing. Maniacally. But then she finishes it with, help me! And I'm not sure if there's anything going on there. Why is Haman's black shadow asking for help? Maybe it can't stop laughing. Maybe. Maybe it's trapped as her shadow and it wants to escape. The other one is kind of unique because it's the tiny defense line, <laughs> which is chisai no hoe-sen. So a small defensive line. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, this one is unique because it's, I think, the only one in this list that is from First Gundam which means it's the only one that Sato would have actually known the episode. And that comes through in the way the joke is presented because we see a little like line of barbed wire, a small defense line, and then it gets crushed by the foot of an Ak guy. And you would only be able to connect an Ak guy with the title, the tiny defense line, if you had actually seen that episode. So it rather stands out. So there are a couple other ones that are from First Gundam. How dare you? I made a note of all of the episodes that get referenced, but clearly that's the only one you remember. <laughs> that was the one that made an impression. I was amused that they refer to all three of these series as original Gundam. That makes a lot of sense to me. At this point, we are transitioning into a new phase of Gundam, that original Gundam was First Gundam, Zeta Gundam, Double Zeta Gundam, and Char's Counterattack, all overseen by Tomino, all within the same timeline, all telling a kind of continuous story. But then you get into 0080, you get into SD Gundam, and we're now in an era of like branching out, doing experimental things, seeing where it goes. 
So now let's move on to SD Gundam Mark II Part 3 and see where it goes. This one I think actually had better wordplay when I caught it. Uh, and some other really neat elements, uh, things I enjoyed in it. They give the title for this short as Gundam Legend. And then in the opening, there's a stone tablet with some other characters first and then the characters for Densetsu or Legend. And I looked up those other characters, but their meaning I don't think is particularly important here. They're just cool characters that can be read as Gundamu. Oh, that's clever. So if they wanted to give characters to Gundamu, these are three characters they could use. This is funny um, and speaks to how much of a divergence this is from the rest of Gundam. Because at one point in an interview, Tomino was saying, there is no kanji in the Universal Century. Ah. This was back in you know 1980 or 1979, and things have changed a bit since then. But as this takes place in a fantasy setting and everything is consciously retro, we get kanji for Gundam. This is the first SD short to really like take place in a completely different setting. Familiar characters, mobile suits are back, but it's a medieval-ish fantasy world based on, I think, the role-playing games that were very popular at the time. One other kanji note, the wrinkles on King Degwin's forehead form the kanji for king. Ha! Oh. It's oh, that's so clever. Three I had not horizontal that. lines connected by a vertical line. The uh, punny moments that I enjoyed were the ones at the very beginning are, are fairly obvious, but when he says, Hime ga sarawarete shimata, Hime is princess, ga is a particle, and then sarawarete shimata is like somebody kidnapped her. But sara. Warete shimata can also mean a plate was broken. And so a plate drops. All the heroes are like, oh, a plate broke. <laughs> and Degwin gets very frustrated. And then when he mentions that Shar is the one who kidnapped her, they all <laughs> start peeing and say, Sha. Uh, sha, Sha is an adverb for fast flowing water. It's sort of uh, onomatopoetic. You can see how they got from the sound of urinating to the sound sha. I will say, as the SD shorts go, this one is, for most of its runtime, pretty good. It's never, like, fantastic, but in general, the jokes are, you know, we can recognize them as jokes. A lot of them are decently funny. And they make it almost all the way to the end before losing it but they really lose it there at the end. The bits that worked the best for me were the various video game references. Their assigning of classes to the protagonists was chef kiss perfect, no notes. <laughs> it's a warrior, thief, and magic user, which are sort of the classic triad of class types in an RPG. Going back almost to the very beginning of D&D, I think Thief was not one of the original classes, but it was like the first one to be added. When mobs of enemies show up, we are given their name and their hit point totals. When the horde of Zaku show up, 
they're staggered in a very particular way that I'm I'm so positive I've seen video games when more than four enemies are on screen, they stagger them in that like two ranks, one of them a little bit offset and above. That very Gosh. specific configuration. The jokes about how the cannon fodder Zaku enemies can power up to be more like Shara's <laughs> Zaku. If they put the horn on and turn themselves red. I just want to point out while we're here, the wine that Camille gives all of these Zaku, one of our patrons, the best around, identified this as a real specific brand of wine, Akadama Sweet Wine, made by Suntory. And I don't know how commonly known this is, but some people become very red when they drink. And it is, in particular, a stereotype about Asian people that they turn very red when they drink. So, hence the drink and you'll turn red. In terms of other video gaming related jokes, my absolute favorites come at the end when we have the fight with the Ziyang, which it looks like they defeated it, but haha, actually you only defeated part of the final boss. And the part that's left over is in fact the stronger part. This is not even my final form. And the fake out of, oh, you thought that was the final boss, but it's not really, there's another one. <laughs> You thought this was the big bad, but actually there's another bigger bad. And with the Sazabi, they do a bit more of that wordplay. Um, oh, I, yeah, this bit was good too. After pushing it over onto its back so, so that it can't get up like a turtle that's been flipped over, um, they're demanding the, the key from it, the Kagi. But the Sazabi kind of looks like a crab. Um, and so they do a little bit with Kani. Not only that, but one of the characters says, I won't fall for that, but I will eat it. And the verb for to fall for sounds very like the verb ku to eat. Mm. See, I had missed that one. You're getting these on a, on a deeper level than I am. Why does the Zucrello hit itself? Is it just going insane looking at Cat Camille? <laughs> when one stares into the abyss. Mm, fair point. <laughs> And then, what is the deal with the Greek letter after the hit points of the bound dock? I don't know. Okay. It's an alpha. I do not know what that's about. Hmm. hmm. Speaking of which, unless I'm missing something, the princess is the only non-Gundam character in the whole short. She is, and she's got kind of a weird character design. It's not a familiar looking character design. It feels artistically different. And every, everyone else, all the people and mobile suits, are chibi in their proportions, and she's not. She looks like much more normal anime proportions. In the first Dragon Quest game, there is a princess that you go and rescue, or that you can. It's a somewhat optional part of the game. I think Princess Gwaylin is her name. And the hair is different, and the clothes are different, but she looks pretty similar to the princess who gets rescued here. Notably, this princess, in my mind, looks like an Akira Toriyama design, and Akira Toriyama famously did the designs for the characters in Dragon Quest. So I think that's what they're doing with this character. The time has come to finally talk about the, the icky bits. Yes. Uh, um, is it any surprise that it's like sex and gender <laughs> related? God, it's such a mess. The following discussion touches on trans misogyny and violence against trans women. If you would prefer not to hear that right now, 
You can do so by skipping ahead four minutes. Um, so the joke, quote, joke that they're doing here is the heroes rescue the princess. They bring her back to the palace. Each of them expects that they're going to be able to be the one to marry her, which is like a normal sort of fantasy trope. You rescue the princess, the hero marries the prince, uh, whatever. Very old. Um, it's revealed that the princess is engaged to Chaman, which is weird because Chaman is like six. But for a second there, we're like, oh, some lesbian representation in Gundam. That would be so unexpected and cool. And would be kind of a actually funny rug pull from under these heroes. Yeah. And then they ruin it. Then the princess hikes up her dress and declares, actually, I'm a guy. I suppose we should clarify why specifically we're characterizing the princess character as trans because it's a little tricky. The princess character does say, I'm a man or a boy, uses the word otoko. But we also know that the people writing this show are not coming at it from a good place and equate having a penis with being a man. And the overall presentation in the show is they call her Hime, they call her princess, which is gendered. They treat her as a woman, she dresses like a woman, in most respects, she is regarded within the story and within the world as a woman. And then the scene of her hiking up her dress to reveal that she has a penis is supposed to be a shocking reveal that she's not actually a woman, which to me just reads as trans misogyny. Yeah. So while I would normally default to giving deference to whatever terms a person uses to describe themselves, and in this short, the princess does say that she is a man, given the overall context of it, I think that's just the writers not believing that trans women are women. Which is just... It makes me so angry. It's so stupid. It's so dehumanizing. It's not remotely funny. And also, like, they have the heroes be, like, completely shocked by this, thrown, devastated. This is so unfair. And this idea that this revelation that this woman actually has a penis, that that would be so upsetting to you that you would go insane. That's a legal defense that people use after they murder trans women. And at least here in the States, this defense has been explicitly banned in something like 16 states. But 16 is a lot less than 50. People get killed over this. And this attitude, the ideas behind this so-called joke, help murderers to escape punishment. You can't just chalk it all up to, oh, it was a different time. Because there is actually really great trans representation in shows like Dirty Pair. Which is even before this. Well, and Dirty Pair was also done by Sunrise, same company. So it's not as though the entire society was incapable of being conscientious about this issue. Yeah, this is reminding me a little bit of my reaction to when Judo strangled Millie. Like, there is additional social context to these things that happen that makes them not a joke. Yeah. To many of us. Less egregious, but still kind of gross. There's the whole bit with the Dom who wants to be admired for their ice skating ability and becomes very jealous 
when everyone is instead ogling Sela. Continuing the ongoing joke of everybody loves Sela. But in this case, she's not naked. She's yeah. not even in a leotard. And Char is not there with his eyes popping out and drool running down his chin at the sight of his beautiful sister. So as everybody wants to watch Sela jokes go, I'm giving this one a thumbs up. It can stay. And there is something distinctly humorous about the mobile suits wanting to be cute. Oh, yeah. That's like, a good joke. Why does the Dom have flowery panties? Why? <laughs> Obviously, because it likes them and thinks they're super cute. And mm -hmm. it wants you to think it's cute, too. Mm-hmm. It's a little weird that they eat the Dom. Yes. <laughs> I'll give you that one. I do like the way they defeat Shars Zaku, the really fast one. Um, oh, gosh, yeah. By having the Gundam become a crossing guard. And then... It hits Camille, and they start like... Well, they call him a murderer. How could you? You're going to go to jail for the rest of your life. Like, yeah, it's it's a bit like a bump and scam. It's a bit like they've had Camille fake getting more injured than he actually is in order to extort some money out of this Zaku. The, um, the Adzams that are, like, falling off the cliff, and one of them crunches the Gundam... I think those are supposed to be references to the Thwomps from Super Mario 3. Did you notice they say their own names while they're bouncing around on the cliff face? How do they? Adam. Adam. <laughs> and they've got the sort of like buck teeth that the Thwomps have, and they fall in a Thwomp-like manner. I do want to end on a somewhat positive note by pointing out a couple of the good jokes that they do that we haven't mentioned yet. Um, one of them is something that we're going to see again. And it's the Mark II Gundams rushing in to do special effects. Like when Camille is doing his magic trick to convince the Zakus to get drunk, there's a little like whooshing background behind him. And it's being done by a Mark II, like holding a background and flying in circles. There's a bit with like different colored backgrounds when he holds up the commander horn. Um, which is done by a Mark II, like, with pinwheels. And uh, whenever something needs to be censored, they have a Mark II, like, run in from the side with a little, like, paddle that they can hold in front of whatever needs to be censored. This, I think, is because the Mark IIs are all in black, which makes mm. them look like stagehands yeah. in Japanese theater productions. So they're, they're doing all of the special effects analog style. Um, and then, so when Char blocks the hero's passage at the mountain and he's like that key you got from the Sazabi is worthless this door has no keyhole and they just stick the key in Char's mouth and make him the keyhole that's pretty good I really enjoyed Char as this hapless and extremely image obsessed <laughs> villain because <laughs> they keep dropping the great from demon lord Char and he gets angrier and angrier every time they forget and keeps demanding that they remember to put Dai in front of his title. Oh, and one final note. The whiskey that Amuro is chugging at the end is labeled Daruma Whiskey. Daruma Whiskey is a nickname for a kind of whiskey which comes in a bottle that kind of resembles a Daruma doll, and it's also made by Suntory. Was Suntory sponsoring this cartoon? Because if so, they have a lot to answer for.
And now, Tom's research on role-playing video games of the late 1980s. And Gashapon machines of the late 70s. And now, Tom's research on role-playing video games of the late 1980s and Gashapon machines of the late 70s. And traveling merchant backpacks. Okay. And now, Tom's research on role-playing video games of the late 80s, Gashapon machines of the late 70s, and traveling merchant backpacks. And... Ah! And now, Tom's research for SD Gundam Mark II... Part 3. Perhaps more so than any other SD short that we have covered so far, Gundam Legend is stuffed full of references. To Gundam, of course, but also to popular video games, folklore, cultural practices, history, and even to toys from a decade past. I could never hope to pin them all down, but let's run through a few of the fun ones. When this episode hit store shelves in June 1989, with a price tag of 7,320 yen, which is, accounting for inflation, roughly $120, or a bit less than the value of one Venetian ducat, Japan would- <laughs> Sorry. I'm back, baby. <laughs> okay, I'll calm myself down. Just give me a minute. In June 1989, Japan was in the midst of what is now commonly described as a boom era for RPGs, or role-playing games, similar to the supercar boom of the mid-70s, or the gunpla boom that reshaped the toy industry in the early 80s. I mentioned the seminal Japanese RPG Dragon Quest during the talkback as a plausible source of inspiration for the princess's character design, once she had been freed from the cursed bound dock mask, but Dragon Quest was just one of a host of RPGs published in those years. Inspired by American-made video games like Wizardry and Ultima, both of which were originally published in 1981 and then released in Japanese in 86 and 87 respectively, Japanese game developers flooded the market with dozens of RPGs. Many were simple copycats of popular games, made quickly and rushed to market to cash in on the trend. But there was also a tremendous amount of innovation. New subgenres flourished, and many narrative and gameplay conventions that are still in use today can be traced back to this period. What's more, the years from 1986 to 1991 saw the debuts of beloved and enduring franchises like Megami Tensei, Mana, Fantasy Star, Ys, Saga, Mother, Fire Emblem, Super Robot Wars, and of course Dragon Quest in 1986, and Final Fantasy in 1987. I think that Dragon Quest and its sequels are the most direct influences on Gundam Legend, but a lot of the content is more of a general pastiche of role-playing game tropes, starting with the name. Densetsu, which we translate as Legend, was used frequently in game titles, like Valkyrie no Bolken, Toki no Kagi Densetsu, and its sequel, Valkyrie no Densetsu, Saint Seiya Ogon Densetsu Kanketsu Hen, White Lion Densetsu Pyramid no Kanatani, or Dragon Quest III, Soshite Densetsu E. The color schemes, outfits, and skills of the three heroes roughly match those of the three heroes in Dragon Quest II. The blue and red main hero, the green and yellow secondary hero, and the purple and pink magic user. The machine they carry around that dispenses mobile suits in Gashapon capsules may be partly inspired by that game's slot machine-esque lottery mechanic in which players can use tickets obtained from defeated monsters to roll for special items. Although the notion of paying money to receive a randomly selected mobile suit to use in battle is a lot more like one of today's mobile gacha games. 
The structure of the story as a whole is also pretty standard RPG fare. The heroes form an adventuring party, receive a quest from the king, and journey through various different biomes, encountering progressively more powerful enemies, until eventually they reach the villain's lair or castle, which is usually on a mountain, deep underground, or flying through the sky. Eventually, peace is returned to the realm, and the heroes are left to live happily ever after. Or, in this case, miserably. Perhaps even the scene where the heroes try to leave King Degwin's audience chamber but are prevented from doing so by the king's guillotine-based threats may have an origin in Dragon Quest. That series has earned a reputation for giving the player illusory choices. The player might be offered the chance to say no to a quest, but doing so triggers a conversation loop that brings them back to the original choice again. In fact, when people describe these kinds of illusory choices now, they sometimes use the phrase, but thou must, a phrase which is taken straight out of the English version of Dragon Quest I. In the princess rescuing scene, the beautiful Gwaylin asks the hero if he will return her to her father's castle. If he tries to say no, she will simply say, but thou must. <laughs> or in the Japanese, sore na hidoi, meaning, that's so heartless, and then ask again. She repeats this same trick a few other times later in the game. So much for video games. The details of the Gundam-dispensing Gashapon machine deserve further examination. It looks generic enough at first glance. It's a boxy two-color machine with red on the bottom and clear plastic or glass on top. You put a coin in it. All the ones in the episode are 100 yen coins and out pops a spherical capsule containing a mobile suit. But in fact, this is quite a specific reference. Although the name Gashapon would come much, much later, the first capsule toy dispensing vending machines were made in the United States in 1936, although initially the toys were just a little bonus to encourage sales of chewing gum. As the capsule toy market expanded after World War II, Manufacturers looked around for where they could get lots of cheap, small toys made, and they found what they wanted in Japan. You might recall that I talked a bit about the revival of Japan's domestic toy production after the war back in episode 5.4, as well as the inexpensive Japanese-made toys that were exported en masse to the United States in the 40s and 50s. Then, in 1965, the Japanese company Penny Shokai started importing American-made capsule vending machines and installing them in places around Japan, starting with candy shops where children liked to gather. The machines took off, and in the 1970s a host of other companies jumped into the market to compete with Penny. One expert, looking back at the decade, described it as like the Warring States period but for capsule toy companies. At first, the industry coalesced around a 10 yen price point, then doubled to 20 yen after the oil shock in 1973. But in 1977, Bandai entered the capsule toy market for the first time, and they made rather a splash, not only because they introduced the word Gashapon as the brand name for their machines, but also because they offered the first 100 yen capsule toys. Bandai was able to install these premium Gashapon machines in department stores, a far more prestigious location than those previously occupied by their competitors. In addition to the 100 yen price tag, the 1977 Bandai Gashapon machines also looked like the one in the show, 
They were boxy and two-toned, red on the bottom, and clear plastic or glass up top. It is very nearly the same tone of red, too. Going back even further, the way Judo carries the machine on his back makes it look like one of the wooden chests historically worn as a backpack by traveling merchants. Once opened, these chests reveal dozens of smaller compartments filled with the merchant's wares, which might have been medicines, candies and confections, fish or other foodstuffs, seeds, fishing tackle, pins, haberdashery, kimono accessories, or perhaps the tools necessary for a traveling repairman to ply his trade. These merchants, tabeto, and the boxes they carried, tabeto bako, create a strong visual impression which evokes memories of Japan's past, which is probably why they show up from time to time in anime, worn by characters like Kimetsu no Yaiba's Kamado Tanjiro, or the mysterious medicine seller in the 2007 supernatural horror masterpiece Mononoke. Or, in this case, Judo the Thief. While we are on the subject of wandering merchants, two other kinds appear after magician Camille bamboozles the Zaku squad into drinking themselves into a stupor. First, Mirai arrives, using a bullhorn to announce, Here comes the familiar waste paper exchange, along with an agugai pulling a cart. They collect the wasted Zakus, and Mirai gives the heroes a coin, apologizing for being out of the tissue paper that she would normally offer. Then, after she leaves, a gun tank rolls through the scene, turning toward the camera and offering a hypothetical audience a variety of snacks. Seaweed, yakisoba, croquet pan. Just before the title card for the next act drops into place. The latter of these is more straightforward. The figure of a food vendor carrying a tray full of delicacies supported by a strap around their neck will be familiar to anyone who has attended, say, a live sports event. But here, placed between two scenes and with the gun tank turned away from the actors, it evokes kabuki theater. Traditionally, a kabuki performance runs all day, from morning to evening, with long intermissions between acts that allow spectators to come and go, stretching their legs, socializing, and of course, eating, whether at tea houses clustered around the entrances to the theater, at restaurants inside the theater, or with food purchased from stalls or wandering vendors. A patron with tickets to a prime seat at a famous theater like the renowned Kabukiza in Ginza might get to enjoy gourmet delicacies in a beautiful lunchbox delivered directly to their seat, but a gun tank offering yakisoba and seaweed out of a tray seems just about right for the SD Gundamza. As for Mirai's Waste Zaku collection service, she is engaged in a quite real part of Japan's paper recycling industry. Now, Japan's paper recycling industry is ancient. In fact, Japan's use of recycled paper goes back to the 9th century, which might just make it the oldest such practice in world history. But as with much of Japanese industry, the paper recycling business, and in particular the collection of waste paper, experienced a major transformation in the post-war era. Immediately after the war, recycling in general took off in a big way. With the economy devastated, the cities in ruins, and the nation impoverished, what industry did exist had to rely on recycled resources, like the toy makers, who started hammering out tin cars made from salvaged cans. This was compounded in 1950, when the Korean War broke out, triggering a sharp decline in imports of some raw materials, including paper pulp. Prices for recovered waste paper soared. 
Rising demand, particularly for corrugated cardboard to use in packaging, led paper mills to dramatically increase production capacity, further increasing the demand for raw material. The big recycling companies were focused on collecting large-scale paper waste from other big companies, but that left a potentially lucrative gap in the market. An individual household might not produce all that much waste paper, but what about an apartment building? A residential block? A whole neighborhood? Around 1966, private waste paper collection companies started to drive around in small trucks, announcing, in a sing-song kind of way, over a loudspeaker, Maido onajimi chirigami kōkan de gozaimasu. Or, it's me as always, your familiar waste paper exchange. In exchange for a stack of old newspapers, magazines, or manga, they would give the household either some money, or, more commonly and more famously, rolls of toilet tissue. Hence, Mirai's apology to the heroes. We're out of tissue, here's some money. While I can't say this for certain, I've seen it speculated that the practice of offering toilet tissue developed out of the oil shock and the hoarding of household goods, including toilet paper, that it triggered. In any event, the practice, Chirigami Kokan, has fallen off over the years, in part because the price of recycled paper plummeted as Japan imported more wood pulp and relied less on recycling. But some in the industry blame a different factor, taxpayer-funded public recycling programs. With no obligation to be profitable, these programs have run all but a handful of the privately operated collection companies out of business. Still, although the industry as a whole is much reduced, there are a few holdouts driving around cities offering tissue in exchange for old waste paper. Unlike Mirai, they probably would not accept drunken zakus, but hey, Bandai has been talking for years about trying to make Gunpla more sustainable. Maybe in the future there will be trucks going around collecting your waste plastic and exchanging it for shiny new Gunpla. Next time on episode 6.3, Rock and Roll High School, we research and discuss SD Gundam's Counterattack Part 1 and Class Warfare, Battle of the Bands, Degwin, you pervert! The best Haro yet! Have you seen the man in this photograph? Everyone's got a past. Haman Kai, crimped hair version. A leather vest with nothing under it. Oh, that Rigazi is gay! Good for him. Good for him. Ghost Lala has the receipts. Odd couples. And makeover, 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 makeover. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This served no purpose, but nevertheless. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Nina and Tom, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio, 
The recap music is Olivia by Hyson. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes and on our website, GundamPodcast.com. You can get in touch with us on Twitter or Instagram at GundamPodcast, or by email to GundamPodcast at gmail.com. And thank you for listening. I don't know, Nina. Is it ever going to be safe to share wrong Gundam opinions with the world again? Wrong opinions like, actually, the SD stands for serious drama. If people don't share their wrong Gundam opinions, they'll just keep building up inside until something terrible happens. This week's wrong Gundam opinion came from Hit the Targets in the MSB Discord. Thanks, Hit the Targets. There are two other shorts I want to talk about briefly. Use a different word than shorts, because for short, we're talking about the whole thing. White base vacuum cleaner slash medical facility. Is it the white base or the Argama? I thought it was the white base. Okay. I don't know. (laughs) I'll confirm it. I'll go back to the tape. Yeah, it's the white base. Oh, sure. Yeah. For a minute, I was like, what humorous introduction? And then I'm like, oh, the thing you just talked to me about. Yes. What now? The calligrapher who did calligraphy for Kimetsu no Yaiba and apparently designed tons of anime, like, calligraphy fonts passed away recently. Oh, no. He, I mean, he was 86. He was old. Still. But, like, there were some pictures of his workshop and stuff. It was really amazing. What a tragedy. 